0: So let's begin uh, with an opening prayer here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your sacred Scriptures. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would be here to illumine our minds and our hearts, for us to understand them, and to draw closer to Your Son, Jesus Christ, for in truth, it is it is Him to which they testify. Uh, so guide us tonight. Please, we know that we can't understand and I and I won't be able to speak unless your Holy Spirit uh inspires us and guides us. So we, we ask his help tonight in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh we're moving along here. We're gonna be for we're, we're finally we've moved out of Adam and we're in Noah. So we've looked at Adam and we saw the garden. Uh, I'll show you very quickly some, some, uh, funny drawings here. Uh, there's the stick figure drawings of the, okay, so here's, uh, from John Bergsma's, uh, book. In the book, he leads people through a whole series of drawing these, uh, stick figure scenes. And it's kind of silly, but it's a good mnemonic device, it's a good way of remembering things. So here's the covenant with Adam and you'll notice certain things in common with all the drawings. So you've got the hill. So notice the hill. And we it's interesting because when you read Genesis 1 through 3, uh, which features the Garden of Eden, especially Genesis 2 and 3, um, you wouldn't really get that it's on a hill. But if you read Ezekiel, and Ezekiel was one of the texts that we were addressing in the first uh, class, you see that, oh, Eden's on a mountain. So... That that's another element. So you've got to go to other parts of the scriptures to get the full picture of what we're doing here. So here's Eden. Alright. And then uh, you have the covenant with Noah. So that's the Ark. And does anybody can anybody recall there is a mountain involved with Noah and Noah's Ark and all that? Can anybody re- recall what that is? Ararat. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, what's very interesting is the flood covers everything. It says even the, the high hills, it covers the tops of the high hills. So the whole earth is covered, and you've got these really powerful paintings and, and uh, pen and ink drawings from our tradition of the people. The, the, as the flood is coming, they're all afraid, and they're coming up to the top of the mountains, and it's a really kind of ter- terrible, fearful, apocalyptic scene of all these people in the mountain tops. Well, even the mountain tops are covered by the water. And so the only body, and the only person that survives is Noah, and the ark is lifted up above the tops of the mountains. But then the waters reside, and it lands on Mount Ararat. And so there's a mountain involved in the in the covenant with Noah. And we saw how Adam is a priest figure, a prophet figure, a king figure. He's also a son. He's also a father, uh, and what, a, and a and a bridegroom or husband. All right, and. Noah, you know, some of those traits are not as clear with Noah, but they are there. Certainly the the covenantal notion with Noah is very strong, and the priestly notion is very strong, because the first thing Noah does after he gets off the ark is he sacrifices to God. And in fact, the animals uh, that were on the ark were there, particularly you had kind of two sets. You had animals whose job was to repopulate the earth after the flood, but then you had animals whose sole purpose was sacrifice. And so there were clean animals, sacrificially appropriate animals that were on the, the ark, and their sole purpose was to be sacrificed. And so Noah offers, offers sacrifice. The first thing he does, he gets off the, the ark. And then you have uh, the third person we're going to be looking into is, anybody guess that who that is? Abraham, Abraham right. And so there's another mountain, it's Mount Moriah. You know, So we've got Eden's on a mountain, we've got Mount Ararat with Noah, and then we've got Mount Moriah with Abraham. And Mount Moriah is the mountain that the temple eventually was going to be built on. And so that's a very powerful thought. And then not far from the temple mount is the other mountain upon which our redemption was, was won by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So there's another sacrifice, and of course Isaac is a prophetic, uh, foreshadowing of Jesus, and the sacrifice of Jesus. And then we've got the Mosaic covenant. So we've got all these different covenants. We've got a covenant, so to speak, with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, and then a covenant with Moses. And Moses is on what mountain? Sinai. Okay, so there's another mountain here. Mountains are very important uh, in the Bible, because if you think about a mountain, it's really a meeting point midway between heaven and earth. So if we want to go up to heaven front, if we want to rise from the earth to heaven, we go up the mountaintop. But even amongst, you know, religion, human religion in general gets this. So mountains have always been sacred places, even for amongst the pagan religions. Okay, and then we've got... Oh, that's it. So anyways, there's more pictures to come. So i just whetting your appetite because these pictures are, are fun, right? Okay, so our third study, Noah as... I'm going to use a big word here. Recapitulation of Adam and as foreshadow of promised Redeemer. So uh, a recapitulation, if you think about that word, uh, it has the word cop, kap, copitus in it to is head, alright? And head means a lot of things, but it means uh, the beginning, alright? So we talk about the head of a river, it's the beginning of a river. So a recapitulation is the going back to the head or going back to the beginning. And you'll see that there's this replay constantly all throughout the Bible of going back to Adam. And, but then, maybe it's really just a recapitulation maybe it 's Christ who we 're going back to, so there 's always this repetition always circling back and back and back and coming back to the figure of Christ um, and then of course, foreshadow of the promised redeemer now let 's see here so we 'll go we 'll begin with our our this is going to be a, a sort of an opening text, and this has always I probably read this biblical text and it struck me like lightning probably twenty years ago, and i 've always thought it was really, really interesting because I, in my own personal studies, I read—I've read a lot of scholars on the more skeptical side, and they don't. What I'm doing in this teaching, you'll see, I'm trying to show how how the Bible's so interconnected. So you've got, uh, and this is true for biology. I know I had a biologist friend tell me that there's lumpers and there's splitters. So when you look at different classes of animals, some people like to take animals and see how their commonalities, and those guys are the lumpers. But then others like to notice the differences, and those are the splitters. Um and I'm, I guess I tend to be a lumper so I'd like to see all the commonalities in scripture but some scripture scholars really they they want to di- divide and dissect everything and they don't I think they miss the unity of it all for the sake of getting an accurate interpretation of a particular passage uh and reading many scholars you know you have what's called the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3 where uh the first curse that God gives to the serpent he says cursed are you above all animals and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, dust shall you eat, uh, and he says, I will place enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. Now Christians have always read that, and Jews actually have too. The Jewish people have read that as a messianic text, as something foreshadowing or prophetic of the Messiah. But especially, of course, in the Christian tradition, it's a very strong messianic text. Well, I read some scholars who are like, no, 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 it's I was not missing the text. You know, you're reading into it. But I remember reading this for the first time and saying to myself, wow, this really is proof. It's so subtle. But if you listen closely to the text, Genesis, as it continues on past Genesis 3, and you get to Genesis uh, 5 right at the end, and Noah is born. And Noah's father says, now he called his name Noah... Saying, and this is what Noah's parents or father says, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And that goes back to that proto-evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, where God curses the serpent, then he turns to the woman and and says, You're going to have pain in childbirth. Uh, and, that, and then there's going to be kind of a domineering relationship between men and women sometimes, right? Which is a natural consequence of sin. And then uh, he turns to the man and he says, "'Cursed is the ground.'" Okay, because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the fruit of which I told you not to eat, "'Cursed is the ground.'" Uh, you know, you will labor over it day and night, or not day and night, but he says, "'You will labor over by the sweat of your brow and you will eat your bread.'" Uh, by the sweat of your brow. And as you toil on the earth, it's only going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And, uh, and then it, until you return to the earth, uh, for dust you are and to dust shall you return, or earth you are and to earth shall you return. So, God is here putting a curse on the earth. Okay? And then, but in that same series of curse, there's a promise of hope. That there's the seed of the woman, and it you know how the translation comes out. But I'm going to use a really kind of forceful translation. I'm going to say the seed of the woman will will bruise the head of the serpent, or will strike or crush the head of the serpent. Now that really is a it's a text of promise, and I think this further text shows that because here you have all of this you know Adam's descendants go on and on from generation to generation, and then Noah is born. And his parents have this kind of prophetic inspiration or intuition that Noah is going to be a savior figure. He maybe Noah is the seed. Maybe Noah is the promised seed that's going to come from the the woman, and he's going to give us rest from our work. Because remember, it's the it's the the result of the curse that comes as a result of sin is that laborious work, Um, and then the from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So there's a hope of salvation from the curse of the ground. There's a hope of salvation from from labor and suffering, and Noah's going to give us rest. So Noah's name in Hebrew is Noah, and then it's related to a, a, a root Hebrew word, which is kind of you have to in Hebrew. Just FYI, I don't know if this is really interesting to you, but in Hebrew, the language is written with consonants; doesn't have vowels. And so when you throw the vowels in there at all, it just makes different sounds and does different things. Okay, so I really can't pronounce this for you because it's just vowels. But it, it's like Naham or something if you wanted to say that. But the point is, is that this is the root of Noah's name. So Noah's name is a Hebrew. Noah is a Hebrew word that is rooted in a Hebrew word that means rest or consolation, or consolation, and that's that's key for the next. Okay, so Noah means consolation or rest. Now think of this here. Noah, he braves, and I'm being very metaphorical here, he braves a cosmic passion, just like the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it began in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it, it, it uh, continued with him being arrested, being beaten, being dragged, being whipped, uh, the famous scourging at the pillar. Uh, and then he was... Uh, put on trial. The crown of thorns was on His head. By the way, notice what's the curse? What is the earth going to bring forth? Thorns, thorns and thistles. And what is Christ wearing on His head?
1: Crown
0: of, crown of thorns. Okay, So this is the curse. Christ bears the curse for us. And uh, so He's going through His passion. He has to carry His cross through the Via Dolorosa. That's the way of sorrow. So here's Jesus taking upon himself the curse of the earth, that labor, that is the fate and the lot of all men as a result of sin. He's taking that upon himself and then he's nailed to the cross and he suffers so forth and so on. So there's this great passion that our Lord goes through, but Noah, in a, in a manner of speaking, also goes through a cosmic passion. If you think about Noah, and again, leaving aside the historical questions which are very important and, and, and very legitimate... Um, But just sort of, you know, taking the text at its basic face value, Noah is told that the whole whole world is going to be wiped out. Think about that. It's an incredible, it's an incredible thing. And it's going to be his wife and his three sons and their wives. So you've got eight people total. And it's very penitential. Uh, the rabbis talk about Jewish interpretation. The rabbis point out that when Noah goes onto the ark, the husband, the husbands and the wives are separated from each other. Okay, so it's not, they're not going to be having marital relations. It's not time to, to rejoice or have fun or anything like that. And they go on separate. They come out, uh, in pairs. And they're going to repopulate the world. But they go on separate. It's a penitential time. The whole world is going to be wiped out. And to think of, you know, Noah, it's, we learn from the New Testament that Noah actually preached. So in the building of the ark, over whatever period of time that was, he was preaching, he was saying, this is the end of the world is coming. It's an apocalypse. The end of the world is coming. And people were like, ah, you know, Noah, you're a crazy old man. And, uh, and then it came. And, you know, you have these really powerful scenes in our art tradition of people crawling up to the top of mountains because they see the flood coming up and they're, they're about to die. And they know it. And another part of our tradition, too, a very interesting part of our tradition, says many people were saved, many souls were saved uh, that otherwise would not have been. So that's a kind of a flip side to all that because, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's, there's two ways that we can be sorry for our sins. We can be sorry for our sins out of, and this is the ideal sorrow, it's called uh, perfect contrition. That's when we're sorry for our sins because we love God and we're we're sorry that we offended the one whom we al- we love above all things. Okay, now that's that's contrition. But there's also something called attrition, and that is we're sorry for our sins because we fear losing heaven and being and being punished in hell. Okay? And attrition is a legitimate motive for repentance. It's not as high a motive, but it's legitimate. And in practice, oftentimes many people they they begin with attrition they really aren't sorry for their sins because they love God. But it's actually the fear of losing the benefit of heaven and and being punished in hell that initially drives them to sorrow and and turn to God. And then eventually, hopefully, they grow and they they develop true uh, contrition, perfect contrition out of love of God. But many people, point being, are saved from attrition. And I think that in Noah's flood, that's what happened is, Noah was preaching this apocalyptic event coming and no one listened to him. But then when it came, it was very clear that God was judging the world. And there were many people in their scramble to try to save their bodies realized they weren't going to save their bodies. And so they, they turned to God in true sorrow uh, for their sins because of the fear of the, wrath, of the punishment of God, of the wrath of God. So uh, Noah, if we can, we can see what he's going through, he's watching humanity die, and uh, this, the, this says the, the floods of the deep open up and the heavens open up. And you see a massive torrential rains, all of these floods coming up from below, water coming down from above, and it's like a, a baptism of fire, so to speak. It's water, literally. But I mean, it's like a baptism of fire. It's like all the world is falling apart. And so there's this cosmic passion, just like Christ went through this great suffering and passion, this Via Dolorosa. So the world and Noah through the world went through this great cosmic passion. Now, so Noah brings a cosmic passion through which he settles mankind once more in the friendship of God. And so the, the peace between God and humanity is reestablished after the flood. And Noah is the mediator and the effector of that peace. And Noah really merits the blessing both for himself and for the whole earth. Uh... Just like Jesus Christ merited all the graces that we need for our salvation, so Noah, in a certain sense, merits a blessing for the world. Because the text that we, when we begin Noah's narrative, it says, now Noah alone was righteous in all of the earth. Noah alone was righteous. So there is an element of merit, uh, to Noah, and that's prophetic of Christ's merits. And so Noah becomes the restorer of a new world. And we're going to see how after the flood, it invokes all of these images of creation. It's like the world has been recreated and made over again. Uh, And then, of course, Noah is the progenitor of Messiah, the King of Peace. And then it's Jesus, the King of Peace, the Messiah, who is the consolation of Israel. So Noah means consolation. And so his name is, is Messianic. Okay, It's prophetic of Jesus Himself, who is the consolation of Israel. And so we go to Luke... Chapter 2 verse 25, and we have the famous passage, the, that, that, the Nuke Dimitis, uh, now, master, let your servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. So before that famous line in Luke, you have Saint Simeon, when the child Jesus is brought to him, and he, he, he was a just man, and he was waiting for the Messiah, but how it phrases it in Luke is as he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, because they knew the Messiah was going to come and give them rest from the toil and from the labor of their sin and of the curse. So now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, if I'm not mistaken, within the Jewish tradition, they also talk about the Messiah as the consolation of Israel. It was very interesting. They don't get that from Luke, because they don't believe in the Gospels. So it's an independent Jewish tradition that the Messiah is the consolation of Israel. And so that's another tie-in with, with Noah. Okay, so Noah means rest. Another way of looking at his name and how, how it's relevant to, the, to other texts in the Bible is that it, it could be an allusion, Okay, Noah's name could be an allusion to his cultivation of the vine. In Genesis 9.20 we read, Now Noah began to be a man of the ground. Now that's that's Hebrew idiom, which means Noah was the first of the farmers, basically, okay? Um, so another recall of Adam, because remember Adam was placed in the garden to till and to keep it. So Adam was like the first farmer, basically, the first gardener. And so Noah again, he he's like a reboot of Adam. He's a beginning over again. Noah began to be a man of the ground. Man of the ground is Hebrew idiom for a farmer. But it's good to be literal about, and that's why I put my, this is my translation. Uh, if you look in your translations in Genesis 9.20, it probably reads, Noah began to be a farmer, Noah was the first of the tillers of the earth, something like that. But literally it's a man of the ground, and I wanna, you wanna, you wanna catch that literal Hebrew language, man of the ground. Uh, he planted a vineyard. Now, there's this, also this issue which I haven't explored yet fully, and I, I'm only gonna kinda just put it out there. It's something that I want to study, but I believe there's a theme of food all throughout Genesis and all throughout the Bible leading up to the Eucharist. So, uh, Adam was, there was something about the fruit of the trees, okay, and then after the curse, it's bread that comes out, okay. So there's this issue with fruit and bread, and then of course the Eucharist is the fruit of the vine, and then bread from the earth. And there's all these different things about diet and eating and all this kind of stuff. And I I actually don't have it worked out in my mind, but I believe there's more me being the lumper that I am. There's more unity in the Scripture in, in that dimension. But possibly what's going on here with Noah, he's a cultivator of the vine. And if you think about the... You know, another reason why his father said to him, "He's going to give us rest from the labor of our hands," is that wine is something that um, is able to give us a little bit of enjoyment. Okay, so in our in our work and in our labor, we're able to drink wine, hopefully temper- in a temperate manner. But it it's actually gives us some relaxation. Um, and then the Holy Spirit is often related to wine. So on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is, is comes down on the church. Uh, someone says, oh, they're, they're drinking new wine. They're drink-. So the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the consolation of the Holy Spirit is likened to wine. So I think there's an element of the fact that Noah is a, is a man of the vineyard and of the wine, and there's themes of consolation and comfort. And then, of course, you have the, the Eucharist that is... Uh, um, uh, it comes from the elements, the Eucharistic elements of the bread and the wine. Uh, there's a very important psalm. It's Psalm 104, and it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm about nature and uh, how animals do their thing in the night, and when the night passes away and the day comes, man rises up and he goes out to work. And it talks about how man uh, is, has bread, labors over the earth so that the earth brings forth bread for the strengthening of his heart, and then also it brings forth the wine for the joy of the heart, so that his heart would be uh, made joyful. So I think Noah, uh, being a farmer, that's another element of his identity as a consolation. So he turns the curse of the ground into a consolation. Now, so I ask, was it hoped that Noah would be the promised seed of the woman? Because Noah's uh, descendants had this Tradition in their mind that the seed of the woman was going to come, but they didn't know when. And so they keep um, having children. And in the Old Testament, another very interesting distinction between the Old and the New Testament, the New Testament uh, emphasizes and it, it really celebrates and glorifies uh, virginity and celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, our Lord himself is virginal and was born of a virgin. Uh, in the Old Covenant, there was uh, not that sort of that, that emphasis or appreciation or spirituality if you will of celibacy and virginity was not very strong in the Old Testament and the ancient fathers the Catholic fathers teach us that the main reason why that was the case is because the the holy fathers of the Old Testament the saints of the Old Testament uh, were very um, solicitous to have children and have a lot of children for the sake of the coming of the Messiah, because they knew that the promised seed, they were always waiting for the seed of the woman, and so they had children because they wanted the seed of the woman to be born. So they were waiting for the birth of the Messiah, and uh, you can see this with Abraham, uh, of course, and Sarah. and They're having relations. They can't have a seed. Uh, they can't have. They can't uh, have uh, conceive or give birth to a child. Uh, very wonderful story in Tobit. If anybody ever... It's just a lovely kind of a romance almost in Tobit. Um, Tob- Tobias, Tobit's son, and his bride Sarah, before the wedding night, before the nuptials, before they're going to consummate their marriage, in the Vulgate edition, they have this long prayer that they pray before they, before they uh, have marital relations. And they say specifically, remember, we are children of saints. I, I love that saying, we are, we are the children of saints and we're going to have children more saints. And that's what our job is going to be. So again, Tobit, uh, Tobias, and Sarah, their whole idea was trying to uh, continue this godly lineage that would eventually produce the Messiah. But then once the Messiah comes, then there's this focus on virginity and imitation of Him and His, and his Blessed Mother. So again, Genesis 3.15, "...I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed." He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, uh, to reiterate again something that I spoke about last week, uh, the woman here can be seen as Our Lady. Okay, And you have this enmity that's being placed between the serpent and the woman. Now, there's a famous text in 1 John, in the first epistle of John, that says uh, the whole... Now we know that the Son of God has come and has given us knowledge. And we know that the whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So it's a, there is a dimension, or there's, a, there's an aspect with which the whole world is under the power of Satan. We know that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And uh, I, I talked last week about the famous temptation scene where Jesus is in the desert and the devil comes to him. And the third temptation is he shows Jesus all the glory of the kingdoms of this earth, not of the kingdom of God, but the kingdoms of this earth. And he says, all of this has been given to me, and I give it to whomever I want. So if you bow down and you worship me, I'll give this to you. So there's a certain kind of dominion and ownership that the devil has over human civilization. And in fact, St. Paul goes so far, this is kind of a really shocking text, it's from, uh, as if the Bible wasn't shocking enough, almost on every page it shocks you. 2 <laughs> Corinthians, St. Paul calls the devil the God of this world. Now the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so, now what's interesting though, and, and how, the, how the tradition interprets this text, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So now, because of original sin, each of us is born kind of in the the, the friendship of the devil. Under his, in as much as we're under his dominion, we're his buddies. But that's not going to be the case for this woman who's going to come. Okay, she will never be the buddy. Never at any moment in her life will she be the buddy of the devil. Never ever will she ever be under his dominion because. She will be born without origin she will be conceived without original sin. And so there's a perfect enmity between Our Lady and the devil. Now, what do we see in our statues of Mary? Uh it's I think it's Our Lady of Grace when she's got her hands out like this. What is she standing on? The serpent. Okay. So she's standing on the serpent, and so via her son, she crushes the head of the serpent. her, her foot is on the head of the serpent. This is another very interesting point that a friend, this guy's not a Bible scholar, but he's just a very astute Bible reader. A friend of mine pointed out to me. He said, uh, notice all throughout the Bible, and he pointed to, I think, at least five instances all throughout the Bible, maybe six, of a woman figure cutting off the head of a male figure who was at an enmity. And so he points to a famous passage in... Uh, in um, uh, judges, where there's this man who's a, a, hes an oppressor of Israel. I think it's—I um, can't remember his name—but he's a—he's an oppressor of the chosen people of God. Okay, and so remember again, the woman stands for the chosen people of God. We see her in the Apocalypse. She shows up in chapter 11, of the Apocalypse. She has a crown of 12 stars on her head. Okay, so she symbolizes the Church. She symbolizes her Lady. She symbolizes Israel, the elect people of God. And so here in the book of Judges, you have the elect people of God who are being oppressed by this foreign power. Now, Barak, who is the judge, he delivers Israel, he saves Israel. Okay, he and he smites his enemies. And this guy, this he, this king who was oppressing Israel, he flees and he hides in this tent. And there's this woman named Jael. and uh, it's really again a kind of a creepy and shocking text. But he basically says, okay, he thinks that she's going to give him. Uh, like, refuge. And so, he lies down, and like, she covers him with a blanket, and then comes up with a tent peg, and drives the tent peg with a hammer right through his head. Okay? Sorry. So, like I said, the Bible is very shocking. It's very violent. I'm sorry, but that's the reality of it, okay? So, you have this woman who overcomes a man by tacking his head. Alright? Now, there's another passage in Judges. And this becomes proverbial because it's really, really humiliating in the Bible and in real life, uh, or in our current contemporary experience for a man to be beat up by a woman or to be overcome by a woman, alright? So there's a, there's a judge who's fighting and they go and they assail this one's, uh, town and everybody goes into the tower and they go up to the top of the tower and the enemies come around the tower, okay, and they want it, they're, they're besieging the tower. Well a woman takes a millstone, if anybody knows what a millstone is, it's not exactly a feather, it's extremely heavy. You know, sometimes it could be hundreds of pounds, maybe even 500 pounds. And she rolls it off the top of the <laughs> tower and it goes and it hits the guy on the head and kills him. Okay? Oh my God. So now there's another scene in the Bible where there is a refuge. There's like I think it's uh, one of the kings of Israel is going after this guy and this guy takes refuge in a city. Okay, so he goes into the city and the kings and his army, they surround the city. They're going to raise the city to the ground. We're going to destroy it. You don't give us this guy. Oh, actually, they don't. You didn't even say that. It's like it's evident that the army's going to destroy the city, and then a woman saves the day. She gets up onto the top of the of the wall and she says, "Hey, everybody, shut up. <laughs> okay, what, okay, king, oh king." And she's very deferential and polite and says, so, "You know, oh your Majesty, what's your problem? Well, how can we help you? Well, okay, now that you're listening to me, there's actually one guy we want. One guy, and he's in there. And if you hand him over." The whole city will be spared. Well, she's this wise woman. She talks to people. Next thing you know, this guy's head goes oh long,
1: my flying
0: over the other side of the wall. Okay? So, I took care of that. So now, now the city's saved. So here's a woman who saves a city by getting this guy's head. All right? Now, what about the famous story of Judith? Does anybody see and this, all the artwork with Judith? So, Judith goes into the enemy camp, Holofernes. And this guy's and he's drunk, and she takes out his sword and laughs off his head, and you got this famous picture of Judith with the head. Okay, and then when she comes out, and all the Israelites praise her because she conquered the enemy sword and so on, they say, "Blessed are you among women." Okay, and they say all of these praises that are that Elizabeth gives to Mary in Luke. Okay, and so. We can see where we're going with all this. This is the seed of the woman. The woman is going to be conquering the head of the serpents. And it's all prophetic. All throughout the Bible, there's this theme. Okay. So, let's see what else here. So, reference, let's talk about the curse of the ground. Oh, by the way, we didn't take a break last week. Um, And you guys can take a break this week, or if you want to just keep going.
1: Keep
0: going. Keep going, okay. All right. Uh, so, let's talk about this curse of the ground or the earth. Now, I, I say ground slash earth because it's one word in Hebrew and it can mean one or two things. It's uh, Adamah. So you've got... Uh, uh, okay, what does that sound like, Adamah? Adam. Okay, so Adam is called Adam because he's taken from the ground. All right? And so we can start to see that the curse of the ground goes deeper than just the ground. Actually goes to us. Okay, so it's the curse of original sin. So uh, but it's also it's also can be translated earth, can be translated ground. Alright, so the curse of the Adama, Ha Adama was the ground. And I got all these texts here, we're gonna go through them one by one. So look at Genesis three, seventeen to eighteen. Okay? And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is Hadama, Cursed is Adamah. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth uh, to you and you shall eat the plants of the field. <clears throat> uh, now, St. Paul takes up this whole theme in Romans chapter 8 and he talks about how the world was subjected to futility not for the sake of the one who subjected it, but he did it in hopes of so, anyways, that were so the Anyways, There's a whole Pauline theme that can be drawn from this. But I just want to point out this purple word cursed, and then ground. Okay, ground. Adamah. Alright, now we go to Genesis 5.29. And he called his name Noah, saying out of the ground. Again, we've seen this text again, but I just want to show you, out of the ground, Adamah, which the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Okay, so there's this connection with ground. Adamah with Noah and Noah saving people from the curse of the ground. Okay, here's Genesis chapter 8:21. Okay, so Noah gets out of the ark and when the Lord's and, and Noah the first thing he does is he offers sacrifice. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground adama because of man, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. Now what's very interesting about that passage was a number of things. But one of it is that it, when you read on, it's very clear that what God is saying is I'm never going to go and bring another flood on the earth. But He doesn't, he doesn't say I'm not going to bring fire on the earth. Okay, And that's where the, you get the final apocalypse, which is, which is this is prophetic So the, the deluge, the flood of Noah, is prophetic of that final apocalyptic event. Uh, flames and fire that are, that are going to be on the earth. Um, so I'll never again curse the ground, though. Curse the ground. That's that's you, know, you get this here. And it's as a result of the sacrifice of Noah. Now remember, Noah is this priestly figure, ultimately fulfilled in the priestly figure of Jesus Christ, and it's because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that the curse is ultimately, uh, we are delivered from the curse. So let's go now to 920. Noah began to be a man of the ground, Adama, okay. Just in trying to point out that you get this Adama theme going. Now, this is where it's really interesting. Okay? Now we're gonna go so next time, oh by the way, I keep forgetting to give you guys assigned reading. So if I forget to say at the end of this class, for next class, if you want, okay, if you got time, read, why don't you read Genesis 12 through, say, 18? Okay, it's all it's all uh Abraham. Because we're gonna try to hopefully move into Abraham next week. Alright. So yes, 12 through 18. Five chapters. It shouldn't be too much.
1: Okay.
0: okay. So we go to chapter 12. Now this is the opening, uh, scene of Abraham. It's called Abram at this point. I'm gonna call him Abraham. Uh, so this is the opening scene of Abraham. This is the first time we see Abraham. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, who's living in Mesopotamia, in the city of Ur, it's full of idols. Okay. And most likely his father was an idolater, his grandfather, his cousins, you know, his whole family, they're idolaters. But there's a, there's a Jewish tradition now that Noah began to understand the existence of one, the one true God, uh, through uh, astronomy, through the study of the stars. And Noah himself, through his own philosophical, uh, speculations, began to understand that there's one God. But then God reveals himself to him, okay? Uh, through a supernatural revelation, and this is the revelation that Abraham receives. God says to him, "Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you." This is a very key text for the whole Bible, and I will make you a great nation. So, this is the chosen, the elect people are going to flow forth from Abraham. Okay, and we, by faith, are children of Abraham. We Christians, and I will bless you. So, we've got this blessing, right? Remember Genesis one, God's God blesses. Uh, the first man and the first woman, he blessed them. He says, "Multiply, be fruitful." Okay, but then after the sin of Adam, there's a curse. So curse and blessing, and same thing with Noah. Uh, Noah has um, uh, the Noah is going to be saving us from the curse of the earth, the curse that's on the ground. After he gets out of the ark, God blesses him and says, "Be fruitful and multiply." Okay, and then we'll see Noah does like another fall. So there's another, another repeat of another fall. Noah drinks too much wine. And, and he's drunk and he lays naked in his tent. And his son, uh, Ham, comes in. And it's kind of, how do you interpret this? I don't know. There's different options out there. But anyways, he comes out. He tells his other brothers. They go in and they cover him. They walk backwards. Again, you can see this in all that famous artwork. So you've got uh, Japheth and Shem, and they're walking backwards with a cloak. And they cover the nakedness of their dad. and then. But Noah, when he wakes from his drunken stupor, he realizes what's happened, that he's been disgraced by ham and he curses him. So you get a blessing, but then a curse. Um, anyways, so again, the blessing and the curse show up again with Abraham. To the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of, all, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, or in you, all the families of the ground. That's what's unique about this text. Because it's another instance of Adama. Okay, so that ground that's been cursed. Adam, the man, the ground, all of these different sort of interconnections that, that, that have received the curse from the beginning in Abraham, it's going to be undone. All the families of the earth, all the families of the ground, of the Hadama are going to be blessed and delivered from that curse that was there from the beginning. And so we have Galatians. This is St. Paul who's got all of this these texts in his mind when he writes his epistles. And so St. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, and this is a text from Deuteronomy, from the fifth book of the of the Bible, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. All right. Now, in Greek, in the New Testament written in Greek, the word tree is tsulos, and it can mean, uh, well, how about let's just say this: that same word signifies both tree and cross. Okay, and sometimes. Uh, the way that the Romans crucified people was by taking a tree, literally rooted that was rooted in the ground, a tree, a live tree, cutting off all the branches, lopping it off at the top, so it was just this big stump that was there, and it was rooted in the ground. So it was a tree, literally a tree, and they would have a cross beam, and they would hang the cross beam from the tree, or they would have other, or they would just nail someone right to the tree. So that was one way of cru- being crucified uh, by the Romans. And so you've got this idea that the cross is a tree. Now, where do we see trees in Genesis? Right in the Garden of Eden. You've got these trees, okay? And so the cross becomes the tree of life because remember we learned last week that the that the Garden of Eden was closed off, right? You couldn't get in it. And particularly, what was God concerned to, to prohibit Adam from getting access to? It was the tree of life. Okay, so the tree of life is being cut off. Adam has no access to it. But through another tree, of, through the cross, through the tree of the cross, the tree of life now is given back to us. And we have eternal life given back to us through this other tree. We have access to the tree. All right. So, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles or the nations so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now remember how I was talking about the Holy Spirit is likened to wine, and how Noah was involved with wine, and how the consolation of Israel, and how wine consoles us. And this is this is the this is the the wine is really prophetic of the Eucharist and the Holy Spirit, who's going to go and be given to us as a gift to reverse the curse and give us hope and peace and consolation. Okay, so then finally we have this the last book of the Bible. Okay, the Apocalypse chapter 22 verses 1 through 3. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, the tree of life. So now we get the the, the tree of life shows up again here in the final book of the Bible, and everybody can go to the tree of life. It bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree we're for the healing of the nations. That's a beautiful line. The leaves of the tree, were for the healing of the nations. And we understand as Catholics, it's actually a very distinctive part of our theological tradition, that original sin is called the wound. The wound of original sin. Okay, And that's in distinction to other Christian traditions, in particular the Calvinist tradition. Uh, John Calvin taught that original sin has absolutely annihilated or decimated human nature. Completely eradicated it. So that there's nothing left. Human free will is not left, and human reason, in terms of understanding transcendent, uh, realities like the existence of God, is totally annihilated. Okay, that's, that's, and it's, it's not, it's not, it's an incorrect understanding of original sin. But that's what he embraced, he, and Luther did as well. So they have this understanding that original sin completely destroyed the reason and the will of man when it comes to religious Realities. But for us as Catholics, what we understand is that original sin has wounded human nature. And so that our reason is impaired, but it's not completely annihilated or destroyed. And so that through grace, our reason can start to be restored. And as grace repairs the wounds and heals the wounds of original sin in us, our reason starts to function more properly, like how it was intended to function. And we begin to be able to reason more clearly about God and about ethical things. And so that's that's the nature. We believe that original sin is a wound, and grace heals and repairs that which is there. So with the with Calvinist tradition, grace is something extrinsic that kind of comes... It's got to circumvent human nature. It doesn't involve human nature. But for us as Catholics, and I, I believe it's a true scriptural understanding, is that grace builds on nature and works through nature... It takes it and elevates it and heals it and reforms it. Okay, So that's a really, really key thing. I find that a great line here. It says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then it says, and there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face. So that's the beatific vision. That is something else I talked about last week that grace is given to us to heal our human nature, to elevate it, and to be the principle that's going to bring us to our final, last end, our destiny, which is to see God, to see the blessed Trinity with the eyes of our intellect. That's what we refer to as the beatific vision. Now think of the word, that phrase, beatific vision. Beatific means blessed. So there's a blessing. Remember this blessing in the beginning that was erased by the curse, and we're heading back to that original blessing, the blessing that God wants us to have, and that is the true blessing of seeing God. And then, of course, our Lord, who is the new Moses, gets up on the new mountain and the Mount si- uh, not Mount Sinai, but the Mount of the Beatitudes. And he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's the beginning of his preaching is the blessedness. Okay, that's going to be restored. That was lost with Adam. <clears throat> okay, so uh let's go back to a little bit more how like Noah is like an Adam. Noah is like a second Adam. Okay, so God allows the world to return to a state of formlessness and emptiness with his spirit moving over the face of the waters once more. So very interesting, right in the beginning of the Bible, okay, in the first verse of the Bible, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and it was void or empty. And the spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. The spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. And then God said, "Let there be lights." And there was lights. So we're and so on. Okay, now that word spirit that's translated in our English Bibles as spirit is a Hebrew word. It's and this even sounds like like something windy. Ruach. Ruach. Okay, so you have Ruach is this Hebrew word, and it means wind, but it also means spirit. So it means both of those, okay? Uh, it's actually identical in Greek. In Greek, you have pneuma, and pneuma means spirit or wind, okay? And when Jesus says, um, unless you are born from above, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, truly, I tell you, the spirit blows where it wills. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with all those who are born of the Spirit. And so the Spirit is being likened to wind, but Spirit is pneuma. So so pneuma, wind, Spirit is the same thing. So we can talk about the holy wind, so to speak. We're filled with the holy wind. (laughs) (laughs) It says God allows the world to return to the state of harmlessness and emptiness. In what sense did it return? I'm talking about Noah. Noah's flood... Okay, uh, cause in the, the first scene- but, but it says that in Genesis. Exactly, that's why I'm trying to tie together the, the creation and then the flood. They're tied together. Because in the beginning, the first scene that we see as readers of the Bible is this vast expanse of water. Nothing but water. That's all we see. And it, well, we don't see it because it's dark. Alright? But it's just a vast expanse of water. That's where creation begins. And God, and the Spirit of God is moving over the face of the waters. Now God brings the flood on the earth, and it's like He returns it to how it was in the beginning. So the flood covers everything, and it's dark because the clouds also. So it's like a return to this primeval darkness and chaos. Okay, and then little by little, the water, the wind starts to blow over the water. This is Noah I'm talking about, and it reduces the water so that the mountains are seen. So now, just like God says, let the earth come up, rise above the water, so it was a recreation taking place, as if it were a recreation taking place in Noah. So you have this passage in Genesis 1-2, and then in Genesis 8-1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle. See, that got cut off there. I'm not happy about that. Yeah, it says, uh, okay, I'll read it for you here. It says, but God, this is Genesis 8-1, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind, Ruach, to blow over the water. So there's again, we just return the spirit that we see in Genesis 1-1 that's moving over the water. Now we see it again here after Genesis 8, after the flood is reciting the water, I'm sorry, the wind that spirits, it's Ruach. Okay, and so let's tie this in now to our Lord's baptism. Okay, so our Lord goes to the Jordan. Now you have to understand that all of this—it's really uh, interesting to study primitive. Uh, well, not, I should say primitive, but ancient languages have less vocabulary than English. In English, we have we have 12 words that can mean that signify concretely. One there's one denotation, one concrete thing. These 12 different words all refer to. Um, And that's good. English is a very useful language because of its wide variety of words. It's huge vocabulary, and you can get different nuances. But what you do, the ancient languages are interesting because it's not like that. Hebrew in particular, and Greek as well. But Hebrew's got, you know, one word, two words that have one concrete reference. And what happens though is that same word is used in all of these different contexts, and then we translate it with a multiplicity of different English words. But when you read the original, you get the connections better. It's easier to do to be a lumper like me, okay? Because you just all the passages start coming together because it's the same word that's being used. Whereas you miss it in the English because it's we use we translate it with a different English word. So you got this word ruach, okay? So, my point is, is that when you go to the Lord's baptism, oftentimes rivers are called the same thing as oceans. The same word refers to this, This it's like water. Floods, it's called sometimes. Floods, you could talk about. Floods means, means rivers, it means lakes. Uh, well, it's probably a moving thing. Uh, ocean, you know, oceans and rivers are called floods. So if you think about Christ coming into the Jordan, it's almost like a return to that ocean, that primeval ocean. Okay, and here he is, and now what's the what's the famous animal that comes, that's connected between Noah and Jesus, at Jesus' baptism?
1: Famous animal, the dove. Okay,
0: so the dove. So at the end of the flood with Noah, Noah uh, is, he wants ground, he wants the ground to be, you know, he, he wants to know if he can get, let the animals out and get on the ground. So he lets forth uh, some birds, and the birds kind of they they don't come back you know but the dove he lets the dove go and the dove comes back comes back again and so he knows that there's no place for the dove to land well the dove comes back like a second or third time with an olive branch in its mouth okay and so what what Noah knows now is that now trees are about to are are appearing so that the bird the dove can land on the the olive tree okay and then he sends out the dove and it doesn't come back so now he knows that the Okay, and what that's a symbol of is a peace. It's peace between God and man, because God and man were at enmity with each other. All right, and this is why here you know you know you mess with God and God you know you don't want to mess with God. You come you come, you come with a knife. He comes with a machine gun. You know? So so that's how you can understand the flood is like God is, is at enmity with humankind who have corrupted themselves in the face of the ground, and then God brings the waters to destroy everything on the ground and the earth. And so there's this enmity, but it's through Noah that peace is restored, that peace between God and humanity. And so here's Jesus Christ, who's in the the water of the Jordan, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, okay, in the form of a dove, just like Noah, and it's a symbol of peace. But it's the Holy Spirit, just like the Spirit, was on the face of the waters in Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. And... Uh, God says that the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. So remember, we're talking about sonship, about how Adam is a son of God, about how Noah is a son of God in as much as he's kind of a, re, a recap of uh, Adam. And so here's now all of these figures, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, they all head towards Jesus Christ. It all comes to a head with Jesus, who's in the water, and he is sanctifying the waters of, of the sacrament of baptism for us. So that in baptism, we receive that Holy Spirit. And we are, we are regenerated. Because remember, Genesis chapter 1, when the Spirit hovers, there's a re- there's a generation that's gonna take place. Genesis, the book of the Bible itself is called Genesis. So we're regenerated in the font of, of baptism. Okay, so there's a recreation, just like the world was created, and then recreated as a manner of speaking, after the flood. There's a recreation. So we, through the waters of baptism, water, the waters of baptism washed away all the sin, just like the, the flood of Noah washed away all the sinful humanity that was on the earth, and then, uh, and then it, it, it brought peace, restored peace. So there's all this sacramental uh, typology. It's prophetic of the, of the sacrament of baptism. Okay. Uh, okay, then for a second time, he pulls the dry land out of the water. Okay, God, this is God pulling the dry land out of the water. So, um, so read Genesis 8, 1 through 12. Now that would be... So let's have Tony here read Genesis 8, 1 through 12. Finally, we get to hear from you guys. I'm glad. I'm Genesis. I'm
1: glad.
2: There's a one through twelve. Okay. okay. The waters maintained their crest over the earth for one hundred and fifty days. And then God remembered Noah and all the animals, wild and tame, that were with him in the ark. So God made a wind sweep over the earth, and the waters began to subside.
0: What's that wind in Hebrew? Ruach,
2: Ru-a. Ru-a.
0: right? Ru-a. Okay,
2: which came the spirit? <laughs> the fountains of the abyss and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the downpour from the sky was held back. Gradually, the waters receded from the earth. At the end of one hundred and fifty days, the waters had so diminished that, in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. (laughs) The waters continued to diminish until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains appeared. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the hatch he had made in the ark, and he sent out a raven to see if the waters had lessened on the earth. It flew back and forth until the waters dried off from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the waters had lessened on the earth. But the dove could find no place to alight and perch, and it returned to him in the ark, for there was water all over the earth. Putting out his hand, he caught the dove and drew it back to him inside the ark. He waited seven days more and again sent the dove out from the ark. In the evening the dove came back to him, and there in its bill was a plucked-off olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had lessened on the earth. He waited still another seven days and then released the dove once more, and this time it did not come back.
0: Very good. Okay, um... So a few things that we get, we get a lot of stuff there. This is kind of a recap of what we've already talked about. But something very interesting to, to, to listen to is this. It says, "God remembered the animals, and God remembered Noah." Now, what what does that echo with? And listen, think of our liturgy. Think of our liturgy. Remember. Do this in remembrance of
1: these.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's always there's this issue of remembrance. And that the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were remembrances. And they're ultimately fulfilled in the sacraments of the New Testament. Uh, so there's this issue of calling to mind constantly what these things mean. Because it's all, it's all very profound meaning. And So you have to think and meditate and remember, remember, remember. Because we forget. So it's really, really important. I mean, think about how if you don't meditate. This is one of my homilies. I was bashing people, telling people to pray. You know, Pray, 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 pray. It's really, really important to meditate and to think on a daily basis. If you, if you do not meditate on a daily basis, truths of the faith, you forget. And you will just live your life as if there's no God. I mean, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Because this is original sin. Is, it has consequences. Of that. We have, we have concupiscence that pulls us to dissipation and just, okay. So, we have to keep remembering. This is what we're doing here tonight. It's a really beautiful thing. Is we're having the Word of God talking about the Word of God, we're thinking about the Word of God, we're remembering, we're thinking. And that has power to us, for us, to change our lives. And it also inspires us to pray for the graces that we need to live our lives as Christians. So that's one thing. But another another point, I was trying to find it really quick, I can't. I know it's in it's in the Apocalypse, chapter 21 or 22. But very interesting, at the, the end of the book, last book of the Bible, the prophet sees a new heaven and a new earth. And it says, "And the ocean was no more." And the ocean was no more. Okay, uh, it's very, very interesting. So this ocean, if you can think about it, it's it's almost like a figure of a, a chaos, darkness, evil, sin, danger, danger. And this is what people. I, I mean. We have a tendency to feel like the earth is not a big deal because we've gone into space with our technology. But in the ancient world, if you were a mariner and you got on a boat and you're going to just go out into the ocean, let me tell you, it wasn't really fun. I mean, it was pretty scary. It's really dangerous. Okay, And uh, so the ocean signifies danger. Uh, there's a very famous passage, or not a famous passage, but a very powerful passage to say another Old Testament book by the name of Wisdom and it says this, that God's wisdom is given to man's heart so that he can build these ships so that the ships can go and kind of get people safely to where they're supposed to be and to brave the, the dangerous ocean. And it says, is, basically it says, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, isn't it amazing that God can use a little piece of wood to save mankind?
1: Oh. wow! Oh. Oh. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay, And so, uh, I don't even have to say. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And so here's Noah lifted up on the wood of the ark. So the wood of the ark is lifted up. Okay, it keeps saying how it's lifted up above, above what? Above the sin of mankind. Lifted up, lifted up. And it saves eight people. Okay, now Jesus Christ says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And so Christ is speaking about when He's lifted up on the cross, the wood of the cross. So you got the wood of the ark lifting up the eight people who were saved above the sin of mankind and the wood of the cross lifting us up, drawing all men. Okay, Okay. Uh, the ark is like a floating garden of Eden. Okay, so I'm trying to do this thing where I'm trying to show how Noah is sort of like a recap of, of Adam. It's a floating garden of Eden from which the animals go forth to multiply and fill the earth. Because you can remember... Adam names the animals. So Adam's in the garden; he's in there, and uh, from the earth, there's these animals are created. He names them, and then the animals go forth to the world, and they populate the world. So also the ark is full of all of these animals, and um, uh, it's from from the ark that the animals go forth to re- repopulate the earth. Okay. Uh, Noah is a priest who offers sacrifice. So we're here in Genesis eight twenty. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every, uh, and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. A little side note here is that in a certain sense Noah is a prophet as well because he preached repentance to the world before, you know, he predicted, okay, he predicted the apocalypse of the, of the great flood that was going to come. He predicted, he says, everybody, this is going to come. Repent. So he's also a prophet as well as a priest. Because remember, I'm showing you how Adam was a prophet as well as a priest. So Noah is a prophet as well as a priest. But I'm going to go back to more on Noah as a priest. Whoops. So it says that Noah... Did I skip over one? Yeah, so it says Noah walked with God. This is very interesting. Genesis 6-9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now that exact phrase, not just the verb, but the verb and the preposition, walked with, it appears only one other point in the Old Testament, and that is in Malachi. And Malachi, the prophet Malachi, is all about the Old Testament priesthood. Okay, so it's a book dedicated to the priesthood. So in Malachi, actually, why don't we have someone read Malachi? Uh, Monica, why don't you read Malachi chapter two, verses four to seven? Um, Malachi is is in the it's kinda of like at the end of the old testament. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. going to do it Maccabees. Maccabees is gonna be before Maccabees. Oh geez.
1: Okay. It's before Maccabees?
0: It should be, unless you guys are have a No, I got you're, it.
1: little no, no, bit huh? oh, yeah, a little you Your a of you're bit different
0: than it's going to
1: be right before so the New Testament.
0: Tag out. Okay. Yeah, it is. So, so in some Bibles, it's going to appear right before the Gospels. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Oh,
1: where is it? Oh, there it is. Right? Right. No, no, that's my. Malachi. Yeah. Okay, so
0: Malachi chapter 2,
1: verses oh. 4
0: to 7. Two. Okay, so Monica's going to read. That I send
1: you this commandment because I have a covenant with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. Fear I put in him, and he feared me, He stood in awe of my name. True doctrine was in his mouth and no dishonesty was found upon his lips. He walked with me in integrity and uprightness and turned many away from evil. For the lips of the priest are to keep knowledge, and instruction is to be sought from his mouth, because he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way and have caused many to falter by your instruction.
0: That's good. That's good. So the Malachi is a very powerful book all about the priests and how unfortunately the the priests that Malachi was prophesying to were falling short of their their priestly vocation. Uh, But but in contrast to the sin of these priests, the the ideal priest is set up. And it says that Levi, I, I made a covenant with him. My covenant was a covenant of peace. We've talked about how peace between... The priest is going to establish peace between man and God. And uh, instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. The priest is called to be holy. And he walked with me in, in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. So this idea of walking with God is a symbol of... Um, it's a manner of speaking of the priest's holiness. And it's use of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God like a priest. Okay? Now we're going to go back Genesis 6-9. This is probably too small for you guys to see. I'm sorry. In Genesis 6-9, I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to emphasize a different word. Okay. It says, Noah was a righteous man. Now, the previous translation said blameless in his generation, but that same word blameless is tamim, and it can mean whole, entire, or immaculate. Okay? So Noah was a righteous man, blameless, whole, immaculate in his generation. Alright, tamim. Now let's go to Exodus twelve five. This is talking about the lamb that's going to be used for the Paschal sacrifice. All right, take a lamb shall be blameless, whole, immaculate, tamim. All right. So the sacrificial offerings, and in fact, Malachi, going back to Malachi, one of the biggest condemnations that God was placing on the priests is they were using. Uh, Animals that were less than whole and healthy and and blameless or immaculate. So there's a, there, it means a physical wholeness, but it also means obviously there's a moral wholeness as well. But this is, this is a real big failure on the part of the priests, is that they were using cheap animals. So like, you know, you had a goat that was like, you know, missing a leg or something like that, well, we don't about this goat you know what I mean so let's use this guy for the sacrifice but that's totally an insult I a mean, huge huge insult and that was what was happening when God was saying uh, present that to your governor you think he's going to be happy with that kind of animal but you give these sorts of animals you sacrifice them to me so the point is is that for to be pleasing to God it has to be whole and so there's a, there's a kind of a requirement on that sacrifice that the paschal lamb had to be blameless whole immaculate tamim alright Now that's ultimately fulfilled in who? To our, our Lord. So I've got these other passages, okay? And Peter says, You know you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. Okay? And then it says going on in Peter, for this to you for uh for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, he committed no sin, and no guile was found on his lips. So Christ is sinless, holy, blameless. He is tamim, and so the he is the perfect sacrificial animal. But Noah, it says, was blameless, immaculate, whole, tamim. So no, it's it's priestly because the priestly vocation. It's got two dimensions to it. Not only does the priest offer the animal, but the priest is also to be the offering. And of course, that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is our high priest and our sacrifice. <coughs> but every priest is, is called, it's true of the Catholic priests, it's true of the Old Testament priests, and it's true for all of us who, uh, in as much as we're baptized Christians, we participate in the priestly dimension of Jesus Christ. We offer sacrifices, but we ourselves are to be a sacrifice to God. We are to be Tamim, whole, flameless, immaculate, or at least we need to strive for it. Okay? So um this is this is a priestly uh character to not only be a sacrificer, but to be the sacrifice. <clears throat> so now Noah offers his sacrifice after he gets off the ark and it says God smells Noah's sacrifice and makes a covenant with Noah, sealing the covenant with a sign, the rainbow. It's very beautiful. So let's read. Let's have one more here. Read Genesis 9, 11 through 17. Genesis So let's have uh, Joyce. Okay, let
1: me find it. Genesis 9. Go all through here. Okay. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fertile and multiply and fill the earth. Dread fear of you shall come upon all the animals of the earth and all the birds of the air. Upon all the creatures that move about on the ground, and all the fishes of the sea, into your power they are delivered. Every creature that is alive shall be yours to me. I give them all to you, as I did the green plants, only flesh with its life blood, still in it you shall not eat. For your own life blood too I will demand an accounting From every animal I will demand it And from man in regard to his fellow man I will demand an accounting for human life If anyone sheds the blood of man By man shall his blood be shed For in the image of God has man been made Be fertile, then, and multiply. Abound on earth, and subdue it. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, See, I am now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, all the birds and the various tame and wild animals, that were with you and came out of the ark.
0: Isn't there a six, 15 and 16? like
1: 11, 17, yeah. 17, okay. I will establish my covenant with you and never again shall all bodily creatures be destroyed by the waters of a flood. There shall not be another flood to devastate the earth. God added, This is the sign that I am giving for all ages to come of the covenant between me and you and every living creature with you. I set my bow in the clouds to serve as the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will recall the covenant I have made between me and you and all living beings, so that the water shall never again become a flood to destroy okay. all mortal beings.
0: That's good. That's good.
1: Okay.
0: Very good. Very good, thank you. So you have this the bow, it's called a bow because you know if you think of a you know, it's just a you pull back a bow, it's round like that. Now it's actually a circle, right? The the rainbow is actually a circle. I mean, if you could see the whole the whole rainbow, it's a circle, and there's physics are involved in all that. But um, how we see it from our perspective when we're you know standing here on Earth and we look up, there's a, it looks like a an arc, so it's a bow like that, and it's connected with rain. Um, so you have a sign of the covenant. So you've got this covenant, and remember, just I'm just going through these texts to show you there's this covenant with Adam covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, and a covenant covenant with David. And then finally, all kind of comes to head with the covenant, the final covenant, which is the new covenant uh, in Christ's blood. Uh, but so, Noah is offering a sacrifice. There's a, they the, the talk a lot about blood there. There's important things about blood, about the death penalty, okay? Um, and... Uh, the image of God. There's just a ton of stuff to talk about in that text, which we don't really have time for. We've got to, got to come bring it to an end. But uh, you've got the sign of the covenant. I think that's probably what I wanted to point out. With Abraham, there's going to be another sign of the covenant. What's, what's the sign of the covenant for Abraham? Does anybody can know or remember? So Abraham, God makes a, 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 a covenant with Abraham, and He says the sign is going to be, <coughs> be circumcision. Okay, you're going to circumcise all your males on the eighth day. That's going to be a sign of my covenant. And anybody who is not circumcised, he'll be he'll be cut off from his people. So, you always have this sign in connection with the covenant, all right? Let's see if I can just finish off this real quick here. Okay, so uh, Noah as the new Adam, whose descendants are to multiply and fill the earth. So, I think we read Genesis 1 through 7. Did you read? I think you read Genesis 1. Yes. Yeah, you read a lot of the verses there, which is good, yeah. actually. That's fine. You, you kill two birds with one stone. Okay, so uh, if you remember from the early verses of Genesis 9, uh, God commands multiply and fill the earth, just like he did to Adam and Eve. Okay, so there's a repopulating of the earth through Noah. Um, Okay, so all this language recalls Genesis chapter 1, and God's original covenant relationship with Adam. So we can say that this covenant with Noah is in a sense a renewal of the covenant with Adam. Only things are not quite as good anymore. For example, now there is fear between man and the animals. Did you also catch that, right? There's this fear with the beasts. Remember we talked about last week how the original uh uh peace that existed before original sin was uh, also existed between man and animals. And um, there, uh, I, I talked about the Desert Fathers and these ancient monks who would, the closer they got to God and the more that grace uh, healed that wounded nature, the more that certain, uh, there are certain signs that they were returning back to that original Edenic state. So for example, they would be able to command animals. There's all this stuff about the monks commanding animals. All right, And then I talked about... Uh, St. Cuthbert with the wal with the uh, not the walrus I want to say but what was the other the seal, <laughs> snuggling up with the seal on a cold winter night, okay, and uh, and then St. Francis with the animals, okay. So there's all this return back to this Edenic peace between man and animals. So, um, but unfortunately, after this Noah, it's not that perfect. That that enmity between man and animals still exists. Animals are afraid of of men. We think of we think of animals. As we got big animals like grizzly bears, and they're going to tear us apart. Of course, animals are very scary. If it was one on mo- one, a lot of a lot of animals could kill a man. But really, though, they're scared of us. Animals are afraid of human beings. And even when they tear us apart, they do that because they're they're afraid. Okay, uh, and because we're intelligent, we can dominate them. Ultimately, we've got weapons and whatnot, so we can dominate animals. Um, so, unfortunately, that's. But you know, the, the, it wasn't intended to be that way. I guess you know, Adam was intended to be, have a have a peaceful relationship with the animals. Okay. Uh, so, despite the imperfections, the covenant with Noah brings us hope. Although the world is not perfect, humanity is back in a relationship with God. The flood is a recreation, and Noah is a new Adam. So there's a kind of a restoration. But unfortunately, this new Adam goes through another fall of sorts, returning to the shame of nakedness. So it's very interesting. To remember, Noah drinks too much. Okay, he's drunk, and he's covered, and he's the shame of his nakedness is uncovered. And that's exactly the same word and the same language that's used after Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruits, and says their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So there's this fall and this curse, and then Noah awakens out of his drunken slumber, knows what's going on, and he curses his, actually curses his grandson, he curses the son of Ham. And there's all this significance as to what this curse means and what that's all about. But you've that same pattern of sin, nakedness and shame, and then curse. And so, there's another fall. And something similar happens with, with Abraham. And then uh, with Moses is a big deal. Moses is, is that like the original sin is writ large in Moses, because Moses receives the tablets from God, but then when he's up there, okay, he hears, he comes down, the children of Israel have committed the sin of the golden calf. And he breaks the tablets. It's a break of the covenant. Alright, and so then God reestablishes another covenant, makes two more tablets, but this is not as good, because the first tablets were written with God's finger. God wrote them. The second one, was written with we, that, no I, I'm sorry Moses had to do it he had a chisel he had, to, he had to do the hard work so God did the work in the first one and the second one and that's a perfectly that perfectly corresponds to baptism and the sacrament of penance okay so baptism God does all the work all right and uh, there's no pet, there's no penitential works that are required of the bat. There's no pun, all, all satisfaction, all punishment is taken away. When an adult is baptized, the, the all consequences of sin are completely wiped away. But if they sin gravely after baptism, it's a it's a laborious baptism. That's what the fathers call penance. Penance is a laborious baptism. So you're restored to grace. Your sins are forgiven. The guilt is remitted. But there's still the punishments can remain. Some punishments can remain. So that's why you have to do penance. Okay, so you got to put the work in, the hard work in. Just like Noah, sorry, Moses had a, had a re, you know, the second covenant basically was after that original sin was involved work. Okay, so we're going to continue going on. I want you to read for next time if you can. If that, that pleases your fancy, read Genesis uh, 12 through 18, okay? And uh, we'll talk about that next time. So it'll be Abraham. So we're into Abraham, guys. We're in the third person, the third uh, figure. Right, so we're making progress. Thank you. Any any comments or questions are welcome right now. Yeah.